Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday evening. It's so good to be with you tonight. We have two fantastic people to help us through our continuing investigation into January the 6th. As tonight we look at the stack, the Oath Keepers conspiracy. Scott McFarlane is here. Scott's from NBC4 in Washington, D.C. How are you, Scott? Nice to have you with us tonight. Good to be here, Zach. Thanks for being here. And Joe Dempsey is here. Uh, the researcher has been helping us a lot on our coverage here on January the 6th. He's got probably an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that happened on January the 6th, according to the indictments. It's good to have you here, Joe. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to see you. And both these gentlemen will be taking us through the uh, indictment that is the Oath Keepers conspiracy. It's gripping stuff. We have some audio you'll love to hear. And all of that is coming up in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for the news and the starting block. <laughs> In the news today, it's day two of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial, and there was more testimony from Jeffrey Epstein's former pilot, Larry Vizoski. Vizoski says he never saw any sexual activity on Epstein's planes, but he also says the cockpit doors always stayed closed. Epstein's planes, often dubbed Lolita's Express, have long been a source of public speculation. The names of some high-profile passengers came up under cross-examination today as well. A lawyer for Maxwell asked Vizoski if he remembered flying pretty important people, naming former President Bill Clinton, former President Donald J. Trump, Prince Andrew, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and the actor Kevin Spacey. Wazowski said that he remembered traveling all of them but Mr. Kennedy, and that he did not recall whether he ever flew Mr. Trump's family. In the coming weeks, jurors are expected to hear testimony from four women who prosecutors said were abused as teenagers by Epstein and Maxwell. Maxwell faces six counts. Fizoski testified that Maxwell oversaw Epstein's households. Questioned about her relationship with Epstein, he said, I thought it was more personal than business. The pair remained close into the 2000s. Wazowski said they were not necessarily romantic, but were couplish. He said he did not see them holding hands or kissing. Wazowski said that Maxwell was number two in Epstein's hierarchy, with Epstein being number one. She was the one who handled most of the finance, my expenses in the office, he said. Former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has become the first high-profile Trump insider to cooperate with the January 6th committee. Meadows has been engaging with the select committee through his attorneys, according to Commission Chair Benny Thompson, who released a statement today. In that statement, he said he has produced records to the committee and will soon appear for an initial deposition. Meanwhile, The Guardian reports that hours before the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol, Donald Trump made several calls from the White House to top lieutenants who were basing themselves at the Willard Hotel in Washington, D.C. Trump made multiple calls to two teens at the Willard Hotel on the night of January the 5th, Details are unknown, but Trump used the calls to direct each team while discussing his failed attempt to bring Mike Pence on board his plan. We'll have much more coming up on January the 6th in our next segment. Jack Dorsey's ouster from Twitter has raised the specter of possible wide-scale censorship of the left-leaning voices on Twitter. At Jack, as he's known on Twitter, was ousted by Trump ally Paul Singer's Elliott Management. The hedge fund magnet is known for his high-profile and often combative deal-making. Singer frequently donates to Jewish and pro-Israel causes, including Hillel and BBYO. He also supports LGBTQ rights because his son is gay. But make no mistake about it, Singer is a Republican, and Elliott Management is a top source of contribution to the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Jack Dorsey's ouster coincided with the unusual suspension today of Jim Stewartson's account. Jim is a frequent guest of Narratives, and he's a critic of none other than Michael Flynn. However, Twitter came to sane, irrational thinking today and reinstated Stewartson's account late this afternoon. We welcome back Jim Stewartson to Twitter. Twitter did also unveil a new privacy policy, which it claims will protect users, but could just as easily be used as a backdoor way to silence left-leaning voices. We'll be watching that development quite closely. 
Up next on Narrative, we continue our investigation into January the 6th as we take a deep look at the conspiracy of the Oath Keepers. We're calling it The Stack. Uh, Scott McFarlane is with us next. He's here from NBC4. Nice to have you here, Scott. And Joe Dempsey's here. Boy, when I look at all of that happened on January the 6th, and we certainly have learned a lot of new information, especially recently with the new information about what was going on in the Willard, there seems to be a lot less attention being paid to what's actually happened in the courts about the indictments, about all the, the action that really went on the ground, because we're also focused on the politics and the legalese. But there is so much that happened on the ground that day. And I think the Oath Keepers indictment, the, the group of people that formed that stack that everyone will remember, those group of military personnel, or dressed in military fatigue at least, all with hands on each other's shoulders, were forming a, a long queue, we were climbing up the steps of the Capitol and also leaving the ellipse. People will remember those images quite well. We're going to focus on their indictment tonight because it's such an interesting one. And before we went on the escort, you were telling us why you think it's so important. Well, we have nearly 700 federal criminal defendants wow. at this point, but those accused oath keepers really are the tip of the sphere hmm. for a couple of reasons. First of all, they face among the most serious charges. They're accused of conspiracy, of plotting, planning, being ready for action January 6th. What's more, they're accused of coordinating on site using what the feds call that military stack. But what's most provocative, Zeb, is we've had a number of these accused oath keepers who flipped Mm. agreed to plead guilty and agreed to cooperate. And it's been months in some cases, and none of them has gone to sentencing, which leads us to believe they're still cooperating. They're still cooperating. Of course, it's very tantalizing because we know, as in our reporting here on, on Narrative, that amongst the people who were there on January the 6th in the morning with uh, Roger Stone, we know that the Oath Keepers were there that day. There's this video of that morning, uh, surrounded by many Oath Keepers. So it's kind of tantalizing to think what a flipped Oath Keeper could tell everyone or the police about what Roger Stone was doing or Rudy Giuliani was doing, because they were all staying at the Willard Hotel. And we now know that Donald Trump was in regular contact with them. So it is tantalizing to, to think that, you know, there they were on the morning of January the 6th. They're also named in the indictments, a few of them. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that's really so striking. These are top-level defendants so far in the U.S. Capitol riot prosecution, the largest prosecution in American history, and some of them have flipped. You have top-line defendants flipping. Mm -hmm. Who are they flipping on? What are right. they offering up? Who are they offering up? That's why this is the epicenter of the prosecution right now. And Scott, when you say they're flipping, what's interesting about that, it means that they're pleading guilty. They're literally taking charges. So I think Caleb Barry was a member of the stack and he pled guilty to a one count of conspiracy. And he also pled guilty to obstruction of an official proceeding. That Those charges uh, carry you know minimum sentences. So there's five years uh, minimum sentences for, for some of these charges and up to 20 years for some of these charges. So these are not, you know, they're, they're pleading guilty to some pretty serious charges. Yeah, and they're taking a federal guilty plea, yeah. which for all indications is you're going to go to prison based on this guilty plea, and they're offering something up in return. That they were among the first to plead guilty of all defendants is also quite telling, indicating they're a priority of the U.S. Justice Department, and that the Justice Department is trying to show progress to the American public, something the American public very much craves and feel is in short supply. And you know, the fact that we're talking about the fifth superseding indictment, and there are still unnamed uh, defendants that are in there. So there's people like Person 11 that we don't know. That's, that's going to come in a sixth superseding indictment. Right. So we're still learning a lot of information there. 
Going back to the Willard, so we have Roger Stone and others staying there. We, of course, remember the Manhattan madam who told everyone that she was just hanging out with Roger Stone alone in the room. Nothing else to be seen there. But we know that these Oath Keepers were with Roger Stone a lot of that weekend. And two in particular get named in this indictment. This guy, Hydro, Joshua James. Can you tell us a little bit more about who Hydro is? Sure. So Hydro was one of the people who was guarding Roger Stone along with Robert Menuda. And they were in, as you saw in that picture, they were in the golf carts uh, that were put together by the 80% coalition. Right. So he's pretty close to the action here. He started with Roger Stone in the morning. So we saw that outside the Willard. But he also was one of the people who took one of the golf carts and rushed to the Capitol through a crowd of people. He and Menuda were taking these golf carts and just kind of flying through after uh, a lot of things that already happened at the Capitol. So he kind of came in a bit of a second wave. Right. There is this shot here of Robert Menudo. You see him there on the right where he's like, you know, he's pretty angry. This is as the things were going pretty awry at the Capitol and he was trying to get people to get his people out. So he'd arrived. He was yelling and screaming a bunch of things at a lot of people. Uh, the picture on the left is from him earlier in the day, but we know that both people are him. And uh, when he's yelling and screaming there on the right, this is what he's saying. Patriots are storming the Capitol building. There's violence against Patriots by the D.C. police. So we're en route in Grand Theft Auto golf carts. That's on the way there, obviously, to the Capitol building right now it's going down guys it's literally going down right now patriots storming the capitol building fucking war in the streets right now where it is they got in the building let's go so i mean this was a pretty amped up event as these guys were beginning to storm the capitol on that day scott yeah and you talk about joshua james as being part of that group from yeah. small town alabama among those who has not pleaded guilty so his case remains out there in the open and he's his attorney and the other defense attorneys in the oath keepers case have have asked the judge and the prosecutors, when are we going to get about starting this trial? Give us a firm trial date. We got to move forward. We want to move forward, in part because some of our co-defendants are in pretrial detention right. and quite urgently looking to move forward. And here's the thing. They're trying to pin the prosecutors down on, is there going to be another superseding indictment? Do we need, to, is there going to be another delay, another cause to push this back? And the feds haven't committed either way. So it raises the prospect. As was discussed earlier, there could be another superseding indictment coming with more allegations, more defendants making this case even bigger. Let's talk a little bit about the stack because it's a term that we now recognize as being a military thing. But what is it? Why is it so important to these indictments that there was a stack of people involved? What is it, what is it telling prosecutors? Prosecutors are communicating this deliberately and notoriously. They're arguing there was a military stack formation used by some number of the accused Oath Keepers to gain entry to breach security. And I'm reading the verbatim now mm -hmm. from one of the court filings from the prosecutors. They say, these individuals who are wearing helmets, reinforced vests and clothing with Oath Keeper logos and insignia can be seen moving in an organized and practiced fashion and forcing their way to the front of the crowd organized and practiced a component you'd like to communicate if you're trying to charge somebody with conspiracy but the defendants are kicking back at this use of the phrase military stack in fact in the last 72 hours one of the defendants a man named kenneth harrelson has responded saying the use of the word stack is invalid because military stacks refer in his words without exception to members of the armed forces who are carrying semi-automatic weapons and then uses this analogy saying many people move in stacks at a, at a rock concert to get to the front of the line. School children, they argue, move in stacks to go from class to class. They think that phrase is loaded and being used deliberately. And they say 
invalidly by the prosecutor. I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch because we know as well that they were planning this for a long period of time. They didn't just arrive on January the 6th and form this stack. They had planned this along with all their other training and planning. The indictments are quite clear about how much training and planning they did. It goes back all the way, I think, to November um, if I'm not mistaken, that the right after the elections, that they were already starting to plan for, you know, what would be the Stop the Steal event many, many months later. There were communications in Jessica Watkins' texts about recruits and, and talking about what the training was that they were, they, they were undertaking. Right. In some of these conspiracy cases, including the one with Jessica Watkins and the Oath Keepers, the feds are alleging plotting and planning in advance of January 6th with the, the accused three percenters group. They're alleging some type of planning as early as November, mm -hmm. right after the election. But what's happening here is important. In this case, they're alleging conspiring and conspiracy on the ground as well. That's why they're specifying military stack and on-site coordination. They'd like to, I think, be able to argue conspiracy in the hours just before and at the start of the U.S. Capitol riot, not just in the days and weeks in advance. Right. Let's look at one of those, these pages. I think it's from the, the same indictment. And correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm reading from the wrong one, because I can't see it as clearly as you might. But uh, on November 9th, 2020, Watkins, the self-described commanding officer of the Ohio State Regular Militia, sent text messages to recruit a number of individuals who had expressed interest in joining the Ohio State Regular Militia. In these messages, Watkins mentioned, among other things, that the militia had a week-long basic training class coming up in the beginning of January, and told one recruit, I need you fighting fit by inauguration. In describing the program in to person 10, Watkins said it's a military style basic here in Ohio with Marine drill sergeant running it an hour north of Columbus, Ohio. I mean, boy, that seems like a lot of premeditated planning and training ahead of time. It and is. There's always been this interesting component uh, that Joe and I, I suppose, both noticed mm -hmm. that one of the unique characteristics of the Oath Keepers case is not just that there's former military being charged, but that's important. It's that they're accused of readying that QRF, that oh. quick reaction force, staging firearms at a hotel in Boston, Virginia, right over the city limits of DC and Virginia. That component of conspiracy, it's not to be overlooked because mm. that's a readying of arms in case Donald Trump invoked the Insurrection Act, according to prosecutors. That's a distinctive component of the Oath Keepers case and why I always circle in permanent magic marker every court appearance of every accused Oath Keeper because it just is the heart of this prosecution. Yeah. Let's underline this, that for people, if we can, just before you jump in there, Joe, how important it is to know that these guys planned a, a series of events. It wasn't just the one storming of the Capitol. It was an event that stormed the Capitol. They were anticipating a response, either from Donald Trump or from the military or something. And then they had this quick reaction force ready to go in again. They were planned for battle. They weren't just planning to arrive once and occupy the Capitol. They were planning for something far more serious. This particular indictment takes any argument about this not being an armed insurrection and completely eradicates it. Mm -hmm. They were told, and you can see it right in the indictment, person one, Stuart Rhodes, was talking about, I want people also left outside the Capitol and fully armed and ready to go if the Insurrection Act is called. So that quick reaction force where they were kind of, like you said, having this sort of armory in this hotel. There's conspiracy also along the lines of who person three is, because in earlier indictments, person three 
was speaking with people from North Carolina and some of the buses that were coming up uh, from North Carolina. So this doesn't just go with the Oath Keepers that we know. There's a lot of Oath Keepers that we don't know. And these indictments are actually telling the story. Right. Let's talk a little bit about Stuart Rhodes. I mean, he's the founder of the Oath Keepers. And the Oath Keepers was designed to sort of recruit a bunch of former military people, probably people who are, you know, maybe unhappy with the way things had gone in the various wars that America had been involved in. But they had no real other classification for people they wanted. They just were looking for former military people. Stuart Rhodes comes from an interesting history. He used to work for Ron Paul, as we've discussed on this show many times. But, you know, he's, he's, a, uh, he's, he's a politician. He's really not a, a militia leader. He's sort of organized for politics, and he's been doing this for years. It leads one to believe that a lot of this was sort of preordained or preconceived of many years ago, many, many years before the insurrection took place, that people were already thinking about how do we get armed militias involved in the political scene in the United States. We laugh all the time because of infrastructure week. Hmm. There was a lot of infrastructure that went into this. So a lot of planning yeah. over a long time. Yeah, I haven't done personal reporting on Stuart Rhodes, but mm. the dynamic you described to have, Zeb, mm. these extremist groups, these far right groups necessarily recruit military and not mm. just because they're envisioning a possible you know, armed combat on U.S. soil, though we saw in armed combat on U.S. soil on January 6th, but because there's this belief, uh, perhaps well-grounded, that military recruitment really pays off for far-right groups because military recruits are influencers in their community, in their literal right. community, in their proverbial community. They bring people with them because they're well thought of in their community. So it's almost a force multiplier. You recruit a military member or a military veteran, you get a lot of bang for your buck. Others come along too. And extremist groups and far-right groups have clearly learned that. But the side benefit, I suppose, for those groups is if you are going to engage in combat and plan for combat, having military members has people who are more prepared or more understanding of strategy, of things like a stack. Yeah, um, right. That said, Joe's right. This case disposes of any notion this was not an armed insurrection. You have people on January 6th accused of bringing makeshift weaponry hockey sticks, baseball bats, flagpoles sharpened into a spear, tasers, chemical spray, hatchets, pickaxes, I can go on and on. Mm. But you also have some number of defendants, not in the Oath Keepers case, but in parallel cases, who truly had guns, according mm. to prosecutors, on their person in the crowd. And that does include the person accused of having 11 Molotov cocktails in his pickup truck on Capitol Hill and whoever left the active pipe bombs. Wow, that's so incredible when you list all those weapons. It's worth noting that the Oath Keepers, you know, a lot of their origins come from Obama not being a natural-born American. This was, you know, they were part of the birther universe. And so <clears throat> that's why Stuart Rhodes cut his teeth along with the constitutional defenders. The politics of this are somewhat fluid. I mean, you obviously have a great number of people who were there January 6th, according to prosecutors, in vocal defense of Donald Trump. When you get further into some of these cases, though, you see either a defense that's arguing they don't buy the big lie, at least not anymore, or they were there and didn't vote in the election, or they were there because of other motivations. But you also have the ongoing denialism of the 2020 elections, the politics of this moment, the transcendent politics that exists today, mm -hmm. complicating matters for defendants. You've seen judges or prosecutors argue that because of the constant Donald Trump denialism of 2020, that some of these defendants might be too much of a danger to release from pretrial detention or to release from restrictive pretrial restrictions. So it's not irrelevant 
what Donald Trump says. And it's true that a lot of people in this this conspiracy indicted are still in jail. A lot of them, including Watkins, the the women that we've famously seen in that stack photo. I mean, there's a lot of people that are still behind bars. That's why there's so many court filings, because some of these defendants are trying to get out of jail. Prosecutors are arguing to hold them. So that's why we have this back and forth. It's illuminating to the cases, but that's why we know so much. Well, it's December, right? These guys have been in jail for a while now. 11 months. And that's also not irrelevant. That's part of the argument they're making to get out, that they've been in there long enough. As of tonight, Zev and Joe, 41 January 6th defendants remain in pretrial detention in the Washington, D.C. jail. They've probably served a lot of the time that they will ultimately get sentenced if they are found guilty. Let's listen to some of this tape because, I mean, these guys kindly left us a lot of good evidence. I mean, they they did this thing on Zello, which is a sort of a, a group chat thing. And in there, they recorded the entire experience of them approaching the Capitol on January the 6th, all the way into them making it to the mezzanine level on the Capitol. Fascinating that they would do that on tape. And the place, you know, in terms of evidence, it's quite revealing. But it just takes you into the moment. So I'm going to play a few clips of this from that Zello tape. Here's the first little bit. It runs about a minute. Just be safe. Be alert. And stay in groups. We have a good group. We got about 30, 40 of us. We're sticking together and sticking to the plan. We'll see you soon, Jess. Airborne. After that, brother. Godspeed and fair winds to us. Amen, sister. Stay safe. To all the boots on the ground in D.C., we are praying stoutly for you that you will get to accomplish what God has put you there for. Be safe and be firm in your faith, knowing that you are there for a reason. Amen to that. Wait and watch. What are the numbers at the Capitol, going to the Capitol? Everybody from uh, the ellipse and Trump's thing is going to the Capitol? How many are, what do you guys estimate? I think it was a 50-50 split. Half of them went straight down towards the Capitol and the other half are going up around uh, to the other front other front of the White House. What we're seeing is that they split, that they had a plan to go as, as two different de- units, basically. Uh, one that was designed to go into the Congress, other one was going to some other location. But it's just interesting to hear them, firstly, base everything in prayer. It reminds you how Christian and devout a lot of these people are. And then from there, we go into the separation of their two teams, one going all the way into the Capitol and the other team heading um, to that second location. Do we know what that second location was, or is that still un- unknown to us? I think the person was misspeaking. I think when they said that half the people had gone to the Capitol and then he said half the other people have gone to the front of the White House. I don't know if they went to the front of the White House or if they went to the other part of the Capitol. So right. they were on multiple sides of the Capitol. So he could have been saying that there were people going to different parts of the Capitol. But what's interesting about that particular speaker and what somebody also said in there, you heard boots on the ground. That boots on the ground, it's not just a figure of speech. It's literally boots on the ground was the name of the group that were the intel folks who were literally there providing the intel that we hear on that tape and they were actually the ones who were kind of overseeing boots on the ground they were there in the capital oh so they weren't actually on a remote location they make it seem like they're on remote no. location but there's no. actually the, the, all the people coordinating and giving them all this information on that channel are actually at the capital yes there's some folks that are there so so i listened to all of that audio okay it's it's a long it's about two hours long yeah it basically takes you through the entire day so what we heard there was sort of the beginning people starting to get ready and 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 that kind of thing you know you hear jessica walk and say we've got a good group 30 to 40 people she's literally on her way at that point marching to the capitol she's a few blocks out at that point 
So she's on the ground and she's relaying information. Now that information went into another sort of relay. I'm, I would consider it like a relay group because mm -hmm. there's folks that are on that that are relaying other information. They're put it, they're posting things to chats, they're posting photos, they're posting links, they're taking in that intel and they're dispersing it to others. Then you have another, and, and you heard his voice in there too, and that's someone that we need to talk about. But you have somebody who's literally taking that intel and that information. You heard somebody ask, what are our numbers? What are the people there? That's not just somebody who's being curious. That's somebody who's a leader trying to understand, what am I seeing? What do I have in terms of my boots on the ground? Interesting. Let's listen to another clip a little bit later on. What percentage of the crowd is going to the Capitol? 100%. It is, it is spread like wildfire that Pence has betrayed us and everybody's marching on the Capitol, all million of us. It's insane. We're about two blocks away from it now, and uh, police are doing nothing. They're not even trying to stop us at this point. Yeah, guys, police can't stop you. This is a constitutional enforcement authority, the civilian authority of we the people, constitutional enforcement action, direct action. There is no legitimate authority in the federal government the Congress has failed, the executive branch has failed other than Trump, and the judicial branch has failed, Supreme Court. This is a civilian exercise of civilian power to alter and abolish this fucking tyrannical treasonous government piece of shit and drain this fucking swamp. Fucking swamp. Yeah. Trump's been trying to drain the swamp with a straw. We just brought a shop back. <laughs> I mean, that's fighting talk, obviously, and angry talk and also complete bullshit. Angry. I mean, there's, that isn't true. They cannot go into the Congress and act like that. But they're being told by whoever that is over there that they're allowed to legally do what they're doing, which is fascinating, Scott. I look at a deeper issue that's communicated in those radio transmissions. Prosecutors have been specific and granular with how they make arguments about the radio equipment that defendants have brought. Um, it's not a small thing when prosecutors specify some of these defendants accused of conspiracy had earpieces mm. to communicate, that they had a Bayofeng radio to communicate. They're making this a component of the cases they're bringing, be it right. a conspiracy case or otherwise. So. It's not insignificant when prosecutors specify that members of the Oath Keepers, this alleged group of far-right members, were waving each other, directing people. It's a component of a conspiracy case. Mm -hmm. Federal conspiracy cases are typically laborious and huge, among the hardest and slowest to bring in the federal system. They've got to make these cases, and they're arguing about the radio equipment, about mm -hmm. the back and forth, about the nonverbal communication, and about the equipment they brought to communicate. You know, the signs that they were using as well, very important as you point out, because that obviously required some training as well. You wouldn't, you'd need to know what those signs are, what they mean. Um, so, you know, they obviously had to plan ahead in terms of understanding what the sign language was all about. And, I, and I'm watching all these cases, all these misdemeanor cases, this first wave of cases that have gone to disposition, the low-hanging fruit, those who pleaded guilty to unlawful picketing, didn't hurt anybody, mm. didn't assault anyone or damage anything. And almost to a person, Zevin Joe, they're arguing at sentencing when they're looking for leniency that they were caught up in the moment, that they right. were caught up in the frenzy and in the crowd. The prosecutors are making clear in these higher level cases, there was no caught up in the moment. There were people equipped, 
with certain devices, with certain gear, and with certain techniques. In the legal indictments, or in the indictments and other legal documents, that was relied upon both by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers because they considered those that are now sort of, like you said, that low-hanging fruit, the normies, hoping that people would get caught up in the moment. These normal people who aren't Oath Keepers, they really, you know, they're just maybe there to, to see the speech that Trump gave or, or just kind of be there for the day they did get swept up in something. And I think that, that sort of, you know, crowd mentality took over. And I believe that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were reliant upon that crowd, that madness of crowds to take over and the normies to begin doing things that they themselves wouldn't necessarily be held accountable for. And also this reinforcement of this brainwashing, really, because we can't describe it anything else. Because It's not true in any way that they can go and do what they were doing, but they're being told as they're doing it, hey, it's okay, go do it. Reinforces the fact that, you know, what they believed, a lot of them said, was that Donald Trump sent them there, that he, you know, he legitimately sent them there because of a legitimate order from the, uh, from the president of the United States, all of which is, is true. It doesn't mean it's legal. It just means that it is, you know, they're under some sort of hierarchical structure, which was reinforcing that this needed to happen, that this was so important, and that there was almost like a military command structure that in place here to reinforce all of this. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative, and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you, who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.